This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier Dumablet. And I'm Yannick Ringen. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Piracy versus preservation in arcade gaming. Good. But before we start, we have some follow-up. Yeah, uh, I have some follow-up for episode 107, which was the episode where we talked about PlayStation VR because uh, a little bit more than two weeks ago, uh, PlayStation VR 2 was announced. And I forgot to talk about it on the last episode. Uh, so PlayStation VR 2 was sort of announced randomly. Well, it's not random. It's CES, but everyone forgets CES exists because <laughs> it kind of doesn't matter for anything except televisions. I would say cars these days. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Uh, and the major features of PlayStation VR 2 are going to be inside-out tracking and proper motion controllers that are not tracked with the PlayStation camera. So it's a completely different uh, model to what the existing PlayStation VR, which naturally means classic Sony move, no clear messaging on backward compatibility <laughs> at all. Uh, thanks, Sony. Uh, so that's mainly the point I was trying to make. Uh, otherwise, it looks pretty interesting. It's very interesting to see also uh, Sony put some effort behind a horizontal Horizon game that is going to be exclusively for VR because hmm. so far we haven't really seen uh, the big Sony franchises make uh, a crossover to VR, and now Horizon is lined up to be sort of the first one aside from Astrobot. Kind of, uh, I, I'd say Astrobot kind of got put on the map by VR more so than anything else. Um, so I, I don't know things to look forward to uh, in the coming year. Uh, but yeah, that classic Sony unclear messaging. You can't launch a product without doing it, right, Sony? Every single time. So that's it for my follow-up. Good. For my follow-up, all of the items are regarding our last episode, episode 175, about more or less hardware preservation and the current 3G network shutdowns. And I guess great minds think alike because the day after we recorded the episode... uh. One of my favorite tech journalists, Joanna Stern from the Wall Street Journal, posted her own video about what it meant, what it meant for uh, the old phones. Uh, and it's funny, so I'll put the link in the short to her uh, new column and video because it's pretty funny. She is more or less trying to go through one day uh, with an iPhone 4 working on old 3G networks. And as all of her videos, it's pretty, pretty funny and pretty fun. Uh, but yeah, she really hits uh, one key element, which is we're about to lose a big portion of the revolution that was the smartphone uh, and all those phones more or less going away, which brings me to uh, a sad and funny moment that happened this week when I was just going through my pile of old tech and I remembered that I still own and still have in my possession a Nokia Lumia 800. <laughs> so it was a funny, uh, funny moment for me to just boot it up and then play with it a bit and realize that, A, all the services are more or less dead because Windows Phone 7... Yeah, 7. I don't think it got 7. Yeah, no, it's Windows Phone 7.5 because even the version I got, which was from the Canadian carrier Telus, ne never got 7.8 as an update, which was quite funny. Uh, but yeah, uh, it was a good trip down memory line. It reminded me that, you know what, Nokia had great smartphones. Uh, and I also went through... Uh, and full on exploration of Nokia's history and reminding ourselves about <laughs> Stephen Elop. Stephen Elop about his yes. entire career. <laughs> yes, I was more or less like sending you quotes about his wiki page uh, about his career. And like, first of all, I forgot he was Canadian, which was uh, my first revelation. Like, fuck, Elop was Canadian, and he's more or less uh, the one to be known to have destroyed uh, Nokia. So, so yeah, I, I was again pretty sad that even if it worked over Wi-Fi, uh, this phone with more or less Microsoft abandoning uh, having their own mobile OS, uh, it meant that a nice phone like the Nokia Lumia 800 is now a moment in time because if you try to reproduce it and play with it in 2022, even before the 3G shutdown, uh, it's more or less non-existent. Even loading, like using its own shitty uh, Internet Explorer browser to load more or less any modern website and it's just like a TLS issue because most of it doesn't support modern TLS security levels. 
Last up, uh, I made a mistake or I kind of forgot that we kind of disclosed publicly uh, something in the last episode, especially when we were closing uh, the last episode. So um, small note is I kind of forgot to... No, I, I was not completely finished uh, re-listening our episode about uh, Game of the Year, episode uh, 174, uh, where we did mention the secret product I was secret about in the last episode. So That's why it caught me, caught me off guard when you mentioned a secret project because I remembered that we had disclosed it before on the other episodes. I was like, what secret? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. It was our first episode after a long vacation, long night, so uh, you can blame it on that, let's say it this way. Uh, But you're correct. Uh, I think maybe I'll take this uh, small section of the follow-up to just say that in the end, Yannick and I have acquired, or I should have, I should say, I've acquired all the missing art I needed for, uh, so that Yannick and I can play PS2 games online on, uh, third party servers. If we can. Unofficial servers. Yeah, unofficial servers too. Uh, the main issue is, I think the burn copy of GT4 online that Yannick gave me in the past few weeks seems to not work after I was able to, uh, mod my fat PS2. But ignoring that, I, I think you also have a copy of Need for Speed Underground, uh, in order. Yeah, we have two roadblocks right now. We have, uh, your burned copy of GT4 online beta, which doesn't boot. I have yours boots, right? Uh, no, my PS2 laser does not read DVD video discs anymore, which is a problem because oh, technically my GT4 online beta is a DVD video disc. <laughs> uh, so that means mine does not boot either. Uh, but once uh, I get yeah, Need for Speed Underground, which should be showing up at any day soon, we're at least going to be able to play something together online on the PS2 in 2022, which I am very excited for. Uh, and I am working on getting my, uh, PS2 fixed for, uh, for it to actually read the stuff. I'm doing all the research for how I can actually try to fix my laser or if it's not worth it and I should get a new PS2. Uh, but things to look forward to, uh, on that front. Yeah. And it's funny that we both had, uh, hardware issues because in the end I ended yeah. up with two PS2s. Uh, one that was given for like a friend of a friend that was getting rid of it. Uh, gave the game so that I said, hey, the Yannick hinted that we could start looking to doing that uh, soon. So I said, please give me the free PS2. And then I finally found where the uh, family PS2 was. And in the end, uh, the first PS2, the one I received as a gift for or as a uh, end me down from a friend of a friend uh, seems to possibly have either a unclean lens laser thingy or more or less a, a broken DVD player too so uh, I'm happy that the family PS2 that we own for multiple years uh, is working, uh, is able to read games and all that fun stuff because now I have a working setup and I have my PS2 on the same shelf below my TV <laughs> next to the PS4 and it's it's fun and crazy in one go. Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk more about it uh, in an upcoming episode uh, because oh, yes, we will. we've got a lot of stuff to talk about there because it's been quite an, event- an adventure to get to where we have gotten. Uh, and on top of that, uh, I just want to play uh, GT4 Online Beta with you because that's going to be yes. really fun. The other thing is, uh, I believe I mentioned on the last episode that I got a capture card for Christmas. And that means that I will technically be able to stream uh, these matches, uh, providing that my internet decides to cooperate. Uh, so uh, look for my tweets about that uh, if you're interested in following along with Ducanvi uh, and I playing on PS2 Online in 2022. So I guess with that small teaser in the follow-up section, uh, the project moved back from not being secret no more or from being not secret to secret and not being secret, but officially teased that this is something we want to continue exploring in the months to come and we'll be able to report back soon. Yeah. And that is it for my follow-up. So let's get into the main topic, Enik. Okay. Uh, previously on Limitless Possibility, we've made reference to Eureka's Tetris the Grand Master series and how they and the Tetris company can be quite controlling of the emulation of that game. Uh, we mentioned it on the Game of the Year episode uh, when I was talking about how I was really excited because over the course of 2020, uh, Tetris the Grand Master 2, I-, I can't even remember the full name because I have a headache right now, uh, 
Tetra's the Grandmaster 2 Plus. There's the absolute and other shit in the name that I forgot where they go. Uh, just look it up. Uh, you, according to our website, it says it says Tetris the Absolute Dash the Grandmaster Two Plus. Yeah, that that's the name of the game. Uh, th- that became available once again uh, throughout 2020. Uh, it, it became playable in Mame again, and that meant that it was playable on Fightcade, and that meant that I was able to. Uh, play it against friends and stuff and also just put more time into that game and it was one of my games of the year uh one of the things that enabled that kind of control where the tetris company could interfere and say we don't want you to have this uh in your uh, emulation stuff is that mame the primary arcade emulation and pcb documentation project does things on a game-by-game basis and the reason for this is most arcade hardware up until the mid-2000s had distinct boards that individually needed to be supported by arcade emulators. Uh, MAME, by the way, is multi-arcade machine emulator. Um, because MAME effectively implements these things on a per-game basis, that makes it a lot easier for a single IP owner to get involved and make threats and takedowns for the games that they are specifically responsible for, rather than when an emulator targets an entire console at once, because then they're not violating the property of any individual games holder, but they're violating, well, in this, in theory anyway, they're violating like the the terms and agreements of like the, the console uh, creator. So for years, publicly available builds of MAME were completely incapable of playing TGM game, but that's not because the work hadn't been done to support them. Uh, effectively, like the code was just commented out uh, because Arika, the developers of Tetris the Grandmaster, basically told them we're going to shower you with threats uh, if you don't comment it out. So it was commented out and basically you couldn't download a MAME build anywhere to uh, support these games. Now, easily you could find builds that were compiled to support them because they were just commented out. But the versions you could easily access were not available. And as I mentioned on the last episode, or at least two episodes ago, uh, the justification that was given for this is that as long as arcade cabinets for these games are still in operation somewhere... Arika and the Tetris company deems it harmful to the arcade operators that the game be playable for free through emulation. Now, you need to take into consideration here that TGM is 20 years old, can ne- has never really been purchasable as a home version. It has only ever been available in the arcade. And these arcade machines are primarily like 90% found in Japan. Uh, so it's not really an option for most people to actually uh have a legal copy of these games like the the big thing is it was relaxed in 2020 presumably because Arika thought it was completely irresponsible to ask people to go to arcades in person during a global pandemic if they want to enjoy tetris the grandmaster uh which i i agree with and i'm thankful that uh the change was made because that's really fucking stupid that's not the case we're going to be discussing today but i needed to make that example because it's very closely related to this case uh Hmm. during the holidays a different case of developers interfering with games that can be emulated through mame occurred and it stirred some controversy in the arcade fan community and for this i need to set up quite a bit of context in the mid-2000s the business model for most new arcade games that were being released changed to a revenue share model due to the rise in network-enabled games. Uh, I think the game that primarily kicked this off was Virtual Fighter 4. Hardware is now sold at cost. Game upgrade kits are sold at cost. And there are over-the-air updates to the game that are funded over the lifetime of the game by the developer taking a cut, usually 30%, wink, wink. (laughs) I wonder why. Of all credit... Yeah, so they take a 30% cut of all credits put into the cabinet. Most arcade hardware today is basically a commodity PC. Uh, uh, these days, the average spec is like running a GTX 1080, so like a, a five-year-old GPU. Uh, and those commodity PCs are running a menu that lets you boot into the games that your arcade owns licenses to with automatic updates. So it's kind of like uh, Steam Big Picture Mode or just booting up a console, you just have this menu with like 12 giant icons of like the main games that your arcade is subscribed to. And you can just 
go in and play those games when you want. A few years ago, uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs thought this was a problem that needed solving. So they started a new arcade platform called XArcadia. And XArcadia tries to return to the old arcade model, which is you sell software at a premium. That hardware has four slots that accept game cartridges that are right once. You buy them for $800 to $2,000 each. There wow, is, okay. There is no revenue share and no online updates. Like A lot of the uh, discourse around XRArcadia really revolves around painting revenue share as a, the big evil thing that's killing the Japanese arcade industry, which I disagree with. There's definitely some debate to be had as to whether it's actually as big of an issue as XRArcadia and a lot of Western arcade enthusiasts make it out to be. And the reason for that is arcade operators generally agree that one of the biggest things that draws people back into their arcades is new and updated content. And revenue share naturally incentivizes developers to be cranking out new patches regularly because it generates more income for them too. If you're doing your job correctly, you want the 70% share of an actively updated game to be worth more than the 100% share of a stagnant game. The problem is that not all games are suited to a live update model, and those can be particularly brutal under a revenue share model. Uh, these tend to be niche genres like sh uh, shoot-em-ups, which are delivered more or less as complete games out the gate, and they might see a single-digit number of upgrades throughout their entire lifespan. So now, if you buy one of those games, you're forced to make back your initial buy-in at a 70% rate with no real expectations that there are ever going to be any updates that are going to help you uh, make more money off of your player base. And because now you own a digital license instead of a board or a cartridge, you can't sell off the games that are unprofitable to your arcade to make back part of your investment into that game. So for those genres, XArcadia actually makes a lot of sense on paper. The problem is nobody's making those games anymore because they stopped being profitable a long ass time ago. <laughs> And a lot of the games that are still being made for the arcade today actively want the live service model because they're either uh, music games that want to inject new songs regularly, like at Sound Voltex, which gets an update every two weeks with like eight new songs. It's ridiculous. You can't keep up with it. Uh, there are fighting games with competitive circuits that want to push out monthly balance patches and new characters every once in a while. Most arcade games being made today are either explicitly games that benefit from being live services and or they are games that provide a novelty experience that requires expensive peripherals to replicate at home. Not everybody wants to buy the steering wheel and the pedals to play driving games accurately at home. It's a lot cheaper to go to the arcade and play Initial D for a dollar. Uh, same deal for music games. I can tell you firsthand, I, my closet is full of controllers. Uh, you're going to be spending a lot of money for a lot of different controllers if you want to play the whole breadth of music games versus going to the arcade and just dumping in a credit casually. So the question that comes up after all of that explanation is, where do XArcadia's games come from? There are two buckets. Uh, the first one is they license and convert existing indie games that are good genre fits for their market positioning. So if you go on their website, about half the games, maybe a little bit more than that, are basically just Steam indie games that they have taken a look at. They've said, oh, this is a genre that would be good in an arcade setting. We can tweak it up a little bit, and I'll go a little bit into those tweaks later, and we can re-release it as an arcade game, make a bunch of money that way. Those are least, less interesting to the context of this episode, but those are about half the games. And then the other half... XArcadia partners with developers of old arcade games within the genres that they're interested in capitalizing on and give them modern ports and re-releases through their platform. And this is where we get to the actual news that I'm reacting to. One of the developers that XArcadia has partnered with is Cave, the beloved bullet hell shooter developer. Uh, Cave left the arcade business years ago because their games were no longer profitable. Their last game was released in 2012. And XArcadia is producing re-releases of Akai Katana, which is a game from 2010, and Dodonpachi Saidai Ojo, which is their last game from 2012. And the big, the big drama is they have asked MAME to, re uh, to remove support for both of these games' original arcade releases from MAME. 
you can't play him anymore. Uh, what makes him really weird too is Dodonpachi Saidaiojo, like the support for that game is quite recent. And until recently, you weren't actually able to get the ROM for this game. Nobody had dumped it. Uh, huh. And during, like, I think uh, throughout the month of December, the first ROM dump came out, but it was a ROM hack that had changed all of the graphics for all of the characters to characters from Sonic and Knuckles and Undertale. Okay. I, I don't know why, but that was the way, like, some people played through the game for the first time with this weird-ass ROM hack over the holidays, uh, just as this news was coming out. It was very strange. Um, so, like, you could even make the case that Dronpachi Saidaiojo, because the ROM was so hard to come by, like, it's not even really changing anything that it was, uh, that it had its support removed. So, the debate around all of this news is, are people who are against this move cheapskates who just want to play the game for free and who don't care about the health of the arcade business? Or are there legitimate reasons for being upset? Spoilers, I think there are legitimate reasons for being upset. Uh, and we're going to go through them. So the first thing, and this is just the most basic thing, if you do like five minutes of research, like this is the first thing that will come up. X-Arcadia re-releases are not just competing against emulation. They are competing against these games' existing home versions. Akai Katana was released on Xbox 360 in 2011 in Japan and in the rest of the world in 2012. In fact, they made so many fucking copies of that game that I saw it at Giant Tiger, which is a discount department store in Canada, for $5 in bargain bins for years. <laughs> it's not hard to get a copy of Akai Katana. They are literally giving them away to people. Um, that's not to say it's a bad game. It's just they made too much of it. Big difference. Uh, Dodonpachi Saidaiojo got a 2013 Xbox 360 release. This one is actually a lot harder to find because fewer units were made and sold, but it's technically out there anyway. Now, obviously, X-Arcadia is not reaching into people's homes and breaking their Xbox 360 discs. Oh, and that would be atrocious. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they'd do it if they could. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> but the problem is, like, when the argument is that the availability of the original arcade game in emulation harms arcade operators' profits, yeah, but you did it knowing that there is a home release that is more content-rich than the original arcade version, that most of the content in the home versions is actually in your arcade version, so it's more of a threat to you than the original arcade version. I don't know. Uh... The other funny thing is shmups are a fairly niche genre. Uh, and like a lot of shmup players are very, uh, technically enfranchised and all of that stuff. Uh, a lot of the research and development of a lot of the scalar hardware that retro gaming fans love come from the shmup community because they have been the most anal about this stuff forever. <laughs> and because of that, a lot of them are de facto collectors of retro games. So in practice, Everyone who was playing Akai Katana and Dodonpachi Saidaiojo in MAME already has physical copies of these games anyway. They're just choosing not to play them and play the MAME version for other reasons. So in reality, very few people have lost access to those games because of this change. You're basically just limiting discovery of the game uh, through this kind of move. And that's where we get to like my second point, which is... X-Arcadia seems to have a misunderstanding of how this entire genre's community operates, which is bad if your business is sort of built on capitalizing on that genre. Shmups are competitive high-score games, and the way that you ensure a level playing field is by agreeing on the version that, you're, that everyone's going to grind for high scores on. If the MAM version is the most accurate to the arcade version, uh, so that it can, so that you can basically cross-reference your scores with the arcade version in Japan or it has the best input lag, it's going to be chosen as the platform of competition unless another version offers unique content that is worth grinding as well. Uh, and it's like in those cases, like there are certain game modes that are only in the 360 versions of these games. Uh, oftentimes, the only modes that see play in those versions are the exclusive ones because the original mode is better played on main. Legitimate arcade versions create a geographical barrier of entry to the game, which is especially unwise in a global pandemic, as I stated earlier. So 
Home versions or emulation greatly help the physical distribution of the shmup community internationally. Like it's not like everyone who plays shmups is in the in a country the size of Japan. They are spread all over the world, and you're never going to have enough arcade versions that are available to everyone who wants to play these games. If you are a shmup fan in Japan, the distance you need to cover to find a working arcade cabinet to grind your scores is minimal compared to literally anywhere in North America. Another note is not all markets have an arcade business left for legitimate ex-arcadia cabinets to be relevant in. Quebec, notably, does not really have an arcade business worth a damn because the gambling laws basically make it impossible to run an arcade that is profitable. (laughs) And therefore, uh, the only ones that you see are tied to movie theaters or somewhere else where they can subsidize the arcade with something else. Uh, And... Generally, what you subsidize your arcade with is redemption games, which are illegal in Quebec, which is why we don't have arcades. And therefore, X-Arcadia isn't really going to sell a cabinet in Quebec where it is relevant to me because the arcade business is dead in Quebec. Uh, And dead for like, what, 15 years? Yeah, basically forever. (laughs) It's like a really long time. Yeah, the reason I mentioned a a bit of time is because I felt when we were in our teens, there was kind of a a resurgence of it or it was kind of the last leg of its power from the 90s like, i mean the laws were still the same then the right. problem yeah, is yeah, they yeah. were subsidizing them with different things so i'm thinking of like galerie de la capitale in quebec city is a shopping mall with an amusement park built into it the amusement park basically subsidizes right, right. the uh arcade revenue same deal for if you go to la ronde which is a six flags uh park uh they have a lot of arcade machines, including Parapara Paradise for some fucking reason, uh, <laughs> they can subsidize that because they're an amusement park. Uh, you go to something like Salon 86, which is my local arcade here, and I don't even know if it's still going to be around by the end of COVID. Uh, that is tied to a movie theater uh, and a bowling alley. So they've got stuff to subsidize it with, and it's actually kind of a miracle that that is still even open because sometimes I don't get how they're still open. Uh, right. But, like, those are the three I can think of off the top of my head that are, like, the most major arcades in my area. And that is, like, in a 300-kilometer diameter. Right. But I'm still surprised that even in a, in a let's ignore Quebec for a second, that in, like, Japan, in, in arcade TV markets, that the arcade itself needs to be subsidized by something else because it's never really profitable. Yeah, but that's generally why like a lot of chains, like independent arcades have been in trouble for this reason for quite a while. And that's why like people like me have been crying about the death of independent Mm. arcades recently. Uh, For the big chains, they're just constantly uh, reallocating the ratio of space that they give to prize games. So uh, Crane Games, Redemption Games. Actually, this is very interesting. Round One, which is the biggest arcade chain in Japan, just recently announced that they are changing the entire ratio of video games in their arcades by a significant amount, uh, hmm. including, weirdly, canceling a lot of the cabinets for a game that was developed exclusively for them. Like, those wow. machines are disappearing. They literally launched, like, in the last month, which is really weird. And then, like, a couple weeks later, they were like, oh, yeah, we're getting rid of all of our Circle Connect machines or whatever because we're slimming down the uh, collection of games we have and nobody cares about this brand new game Uh, (laughs) i don't know uh so yeah they've always done that like round one is literally a karaoke place a bowling alley like it's very close to in spirit of like the variety Mm. of stuff you can do there um but that is also the reality in japan it's just they have more options on how they subsidize their uh arcade businesses like some of them have literally pachinko barnrollers uh snapped onto the side uh which is literally gambling so that's cool. right the, the the way you're describing it it sounds to me that it would make quote-unquote sense to have arcades in our casinos here possibly it's just that a lot of right. arcades try to attract kids and you don't necessarily want kids in your casinos but right, right that's right. a whole other thing or you'd have a lot of, you don't have an Sorry if you go to casinos, but you don't have a lot of youngsters going to the casinos these days that it is worth investing in doing that in the like 18 to 35 years old general of people uh, to attract those people to those places. 
Yeah. And like one of the things that really sucks is because all of these games are developed as live services now for arcades, it's very hard to bring them overseas without providing uh, enough infrastructure for those live services to be working internationally. And a lot of people don't want to do that. And we'll talk about that much later in the show. Okay, sorry about the tangent, but it uh, it kind of sparked the, uh, the question and it made me understand a lot of what's happening. And you've been discussing to me in the past few years about the uh, arcade market. And I was like, ah, now it finally clicked. Well, to be fair, a lot of the people who are commenting on this issue also don't know how arcades work. So it's good <laughs> to point it out. Anyway, uh, underlying this whole uh, XArcadia shutting down the main version of these games thing is the erroneous belief that people who are playing the main version of these games are doing so to substitute for credits they would be playing in the arcade. This is dumb shit. In reality, they're actually just playing the main version because it's the most accessible version of the game available to people in their homes. When the other only other version of the game that's available to them is on a discontinued console that's notorious for a string of hardware failures, what do you expect them to do? The supply of good 360s is going down and fast. Um, so... Maybe think about that a little bit. Okay, next point. All games on XArcadia need to have content exclusive to their platform, which begs the question, were they not confident enough in their exclusive content's ability to draw interest in these re-releases? I looked into what exactly is in the XArcadia re-releases of these games, and it's a little bit tricky for, uh, for Akai Katana because I haven't actually been able to see any footage of that game at all. I'm not convinced it ever shipped yet. I know Saidaiojo has because I've seen people play through it. Exalabel re-releases, which are these uh, XArcadia versions, are positioned as effectively definitive editions of these games. They have... To my knowledge, again, this is based off the Saidaiojo footage that I've seen, all of the modes from previous arcade and home versions combined, and an extra exclusive mode. If that is the case, first of all, why are you feeling threatened by the existence of an emulated version of one of these modes? You have like six game modes. One of them is emulatable, and it's like, oh no, we can't have that one be emulated. That's the that's the precious one. The other thing, of course, is like, all of these but one are on the Xbox 360 version, which you did nothing about because you can't. So what the fuck? The other thing that's actually super interesting, and this I did not know until this morning, Exolable mode, which is the exclusive mode uh, in uh, Dodonpachi Saidai Ojo, was made by Trap15. Trap15 is a notable member of the shmup modding community who would release tweaked ROM hacks for MAME, where you could play... Uh, even more difficult game uh, versions of these already difficult games. Uh, Trap 15 is a big deal. So first of all, why are you not promoting that more heavily? Second of all, it's really fucking weird that you hired someone who is famous for modding MAME games and then you block the MAME game. So yeah. And the weird thing is, like there have been a lot of re-releases of uh, shmups recently, though usually they happen on home consoles. And the funny thing is, sometimes they're so good, they actually do become the definitive edition, and MAME is barely used anymore. A good example of this is Battle Garega's M2 Shot Triggers re-release on PS4. It was a fantastic port, and it added so many meaningfully different uh, and distinct game modes that it became the definitive edition of this game. You can still emulate the original on MAME, because M2 was not threatened by the existence of MAME to the success of their game, and it did incredibly well for a shmup release let's be sure to have that context otherwise it's definitely going to look like a failure compared to literally any other video game but there are legitimate reasons to want to own and play the shot triggers version of battle garega over the original a lot of the time especially if you suck at battle garega because there are easier versions of battle garega on the shot triggers version XArcadia's entire strategy right now seems to be build profit off of the dwindling arcade business and its collectors at the expense of the communities that have built around the games they're selling to these businesses and and collectors. There is definitely some value in reissuing old games for the arcade, 
so that arcades and collectors who could not afford PCBs of the original games in very limited circulation can now acquire them more cheaply. Uh, you don't want to end up in a situation where, let's say, uh, Street Fighter II, Super Turbo, or whatever, like that's a bad example because it's one of the best-selling arcade games of all time, but let's say uh, th- there was like a battery problem on those boards and uh, the supply would suddenly drop off. Well, you still want people to be playing Super Turbo in the arcade, well, congratulations, you can release it on this platform if you want to or whatever. The problem is, if you don't understand the communities around these games and what motivates them to play in the way they currently do, and then you go and create obstacles to that community's enjoyment of the game that you're re-releasing, you're destroying your audience for these re-releases, which was very niche in the first place. So now nobody wants to play your game. And you're just shooting yourself in the foot. There has been a lot of vitriol to people who are just in disagreement with this thing, which are like, oh, you hate arcades. You want arcades to die. And like the way I would position it is, which of these will people remember more in 10 years? An arcade re-release that may sell even fewer copies than the original version of the game, or the original version uh, that a devoted fan base is still playing 20 years after its release? To me, it is much more uh, important long-term to keep arcade culture alive than it is to delay the inevitable death of the arcade business. And the thing is like, it's been dire for a while. I've been going to Japan for 10 years every year, and I've seen the changes in the arcade space, and they have been happening very quickly and increasingly quickly because of COVID. This is not a trend that's going away. It was headed that way before COVID. COVID just accelerated it. And I think instead of just like uh, stubbornly trying to keep the arcade business alive by doing things that are actively hostile to the preservation of arcade culture, we should look to communities like fighting games for an example of a community that has adapted, especially in the last two years. The arcade culture and mentality is still there within its players, but it's predominantly being played from home and online, especially with rollback netcode. So Don't get me wrong, I'm going to be very sad when arcades die, and a big portion of what I enjoy doing when I'm in Japan goes away, but I I think it's irresponsible to be in denial that the arcade business is dying, and uh, trying to keep it alive with these crazy plans that don't really benefit anyone. That's it for my first uh, scenario. I do have a second scenario, but first I wanted to ask if you had any questions or comments before we move on to the next thing. I'm kind of a bit surprised. I guess I'm happy that you mentioned that, like, the event, the inevitable will happen. Like, I think it's pretty clear from multiple conversations that we had, uh, especially following your most recent trips to Japan, that, like, the arcade business is a dead business. Uh, I'm just surprised that you are so eloquent about it. Uh, I would have not expected that from you even a couple of years ago. So uh, that's why I'm a bit, uh, uh, jaw drop without any words right now to hear you being quitty like it's a dead business stop being mean to the to the fan and to people actually trying to keep its video game culture alive and i i want to be clear about this because people are going to bring up uh legendary arcades like mikado uh, which, like, for some reason, I discovered this last night. Mikado has six YouTube channels that stream at the same time. Like, I, okay, <laughs> a way to flex your Japanese internet. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, Mikado is one of these legendary arcades in Takara no Baba that has, like, basically every fighting game worth a damn and the shitty ones too. And, like, I see a future where these arcades are less about being profitable businesses and they become more like museums of arcade culture because they have the collection already Mm -hmm. and people go there because it is the place that has all the games but i don't think it's necessarily sustainable to have these huge collections of games that like five people know extremely well and the rest of the world either doesn't know they exist or they're like oh yeah that's the weird shitty game where you can kill someone from across the screen in one combo (laughs) it's like it's cool that people are still able to play those games and flex their skills and i love watching them when they do on the six youtube channels but uh there's only so much 
you can do with that from a business standpoint. And at some point you're forced to either get rid of some of that or change your approach to how you run your business. So that it is more of a cultural preservation museum kind of thing. Right. And my understanding of the whole situation you just described is, and a bit of your opinion throughout that is if we were, if they were not doing that, we would, con- we would be able to possibly continue the preservation effort. Now it's just being, a problem to try to preserve all of those things just before they all disappear. Yeah, and like, luckily, like Xarcadia and uh, and Arika and the Tetris Company are basically like the only people who are trying to do this seriously. The thing is, mm. we don't want it to become a precedent that right. this works, and like Mame doesn't have a choice to uh, cooperate with this, right? Because the way it's the project is structured, unless they completely redo how they are structured this is just going to happen and they're going to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But we don't want this to be a pattern that other companies see and think that's a good idea. We want it to be seen as negative so that other companies don't try to do this. Um, and like the whole thing is uh, we were talking about Mr. Recently as well. Mr. FPGA cores exist for a lot of these arcade boards as well, which allow for basically completely accurate recreations of these arcade machines to run in a much smaller thing so now you are seeing people who are going to tournaments not bringing the actual giant street fighter 2 pcb but they bring a mister with the street fighter 2 pcb running in an fpga which is much smaller much quieter and runs on hdmi displays so you don't have to bring a crt with you and that just starts becoming so appealing to people that maybe people don't have to use the original PCBs anymore. And it's like, well, I sure hope Capcom never decides to say you can't have any of our games on Mr. Cores or as MAME things because we're releasing the Street Fighter 30th anniversary collection, or I guess it's 35th now or whatever. Um, I guess it's 30th anniversary of Street Fighter 2. They they announced an anniversary like last month and I already forgot what it is. <laughs> uh, don't ask me. You're asking the wrong person to give you it's more information. It's some anniversary of Street okay. Fighter and Street Fighter 6 is probably going to be announced this year. Um, so yeah, we, we don't want to see that pattern recreate itself. No, and, and that makes sense. And I think the effort you described to preserve a lot of those arcade games is notable and I think making it harder to be continued is not good for the culture itself. Yeah. Now I want to talk about kind of the opposite of what I just said. Uh Uh-oh. There is a scenario where I think game developers cannot realistically compete with piracy that I want to mention, and I have a concrete example from a decade ago, and this one is close to me personally because people were very mad at me when I pointed this out originally, and time has proven me right, so I am going to brag about it because that is what I do on this show. <laughs> I'll let it fly. I'll let it fly. This example is from the time frame when Beatmania 2DX 20 Trickero was the latest version of Beatmania 2DX. And this version is notable for being the uh, convergence point where 2DX became a full game as a service supported by obligatory per, uh, participation to revenue share program. Before, it's very complicated, but the versions before kind of had a mixed model where sometimes you were getting patches that were by like voluntary participation in a revenue share. And it's kind of weird, Uh, but like this is the version where it actually became required and most other uh, Konami music games followed suit very shortly afterwards with their new versions that year. At this time, Beatmania 2DX was not officially available outside of Asia in any meaningful way for a long time. The last home version that was released at the time was 2DX Empress on PS2, from, uh, which was released in 2009. There was absolutely no sign of new home versions at the time. Arcade versions you saw outside of Japan were all bootlegs running either offline, which is kind of bad, or on an official, unofficial server, which was called Program, Programmed World at the time. And if you were a sucker, like me, who lived somewhere without any access to these arcades, the only option you had, really, if you wanted to keep playing a recent version of Meat Mania 2DX was to pirate the full arcade game, play it on a PC, and connect to a completely different unofficial server called Programmed Sun, which was like the home version of Programmed World. Traditionally, 
uh, music game piracy groups would hold the pirated game for release until it stopped being the la- the latest version. So let's say uh, 2DX uh, Resort Anthem came out. Well, you could go download Sirius, which was the version before that, as soon as Resort Anthem came out. And that was sort of like the cadence they were releasing these dumps at so that you weren't necessarily always playing the latest version. Problem is, now that Beatmania 2DX is on this game-as-a-service model, Nobody really knows what the roadmap for the game is going forward. So what do you do with withholding your game releases? Well, they sort of just didn't. So Trick or O stands out as a weird instance where the dump of the game was being released while the game was still in arcades and seeing updates. Suddenly, the entire Western music gaming community had a fully up-to-date arcade-perfect version of Beatmania 2DX available to them for free. Let's put aside for a second that all of the American arcades were also pirating the game through a different channel. You you okay. no longer had any reason to go support these arcades that had important to, uh, imported 2DX cabinets at great expense because you can get the exact same code that they have on their cabinet on your PC at home and play for free. This led to what I called the erosion of perceived value. And this is the thing that people fucking hated me for, for pointing this out. If Konami were to make an official version of 2DX available at home again, almost anything Konami could offer would be strictly worse than an arcade-perfect version of the current version of 2DX you can get for free. Konami is never going to make an arcade-perfect home version of the current arcade version because home income is meant to supplement arcade income, not cannibalize it. And Konami needs to change, uh, charge something for this not-arcade-perfect home version of 2DX, which makes it worse than the pirated version because the pirated version is free. So those three points are exactly what I said in 2012 and 2013, and people called me stupid. They called me all kinds of things. And I sort of see why. People had no reason to believe that Konami would ever offer a home version again. It had been three years since the last home version, at some point you just lose hope it's not going to come out on PS3. People had no reason to believe that Konami would ever care about the North American arcade market. Strangely enough, Beatmania 2DX20 Trickero was the first version to target the North American arcade market later in 2012. Konami started sending out cease and desist letters to the unofficial EMU servers, which slowed down but did not stop completely music game piracy uh, significantly. To my knowledge, I'm not super in this uh, scene anymore. Uh, Nowadays, you cannot get dumps of the latest version of any Konami music game unless you can prove you own a cabinet, that you have something you can play it on to at least prove that like you've spent money on a cabinet. Uh, There is a whole gray market about this. There is a recent Wired article I will link in the show notes where you can go read about this. It's not really relevant to the point I'm trying to make, but it is interesting if you're interested in the gray market of this, of importing konami bimani machines fast forward to 2015 and i look like a prophet konami announced beatmania 2dx infinitas for the pc this is the first home version of beatmania 2dx since 2009 first home version to ever be released on pc if you exclude weird keyboard typing simulators from early early 1998 stuff uh it was a weird time at launch of Beatmania 2DX Infinitas, it was solely subscription-based. It was $17 a month, and it effectively gave you access to the first home version of 2DX 17 Sirius, which was the version after Empress, which was the last PS2 version. Over time, uh, Konami was gradually backfilling tracks from the games in between uh, Resort Anthem, Linkle and Trickero, the three versions that had stopped being in arcade because by the time Infinitas came out, 21 Spada was in arcades. Eventually, uh, the microtransaction layout in the game got more confusing, and that is totally uh, deserving of criticism by itself. However, again, I'm comparing it to launch right now where this was not the case, so it's not relevant. It was also reworked again in 2020, uh, There were some issues with the microtransaction layout, but not at launch, which is important to the point I'm trying to make. $17 a month on Beatmania 2DX is fucking nothing compared to people who play in the arcade. That is equivalent to going to the arcade and playing on the cabinet uninterrupted for four hours and 15 minutes. 
if I had access to an arcade cabinet easily, I would be spending a lot more than $17 a month on Beatmania 2DX, believe me. But that wasn't the value proposition that the Western arcade was comparing, uh, the Western audience was comparing it to because they were still spoiled, even though it had been three years since the last full complete version of the thing. They had put so much time into that pirated version of Trickero that they were like, well, this needs to be arcade perfect. It needs to be up to date. It needs to be the perfect version of 2DX. And it needs to not cost $17 a month because that is way too fucking much. Are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? And that's when I was proven right. I was like, you should listen to me. If you just had been like me and you had been an angel and not pirated the game, you would be like, this is a steal. $17 a month for 2DX? Of course, sign me up right away. But people were used to the pirated versions and it ruined their entire perception of what value is. And it set up a situation where game developers could not realistically compete with piracy. So it's really interesting that like in the first example where we were talking about uh, Akai Katana and uh, Dodonpachi Saidai Ojo, you have these games which are basically one-and-done games. They came out, they were released, you played them, and then that's kind of it. They got no patches, they were not actively being maintained, you could make a home release later, and it would have more stuff, and usually when you have a definitive edition, it is a later home release. You don't really do definitive versions in arcades, because that's kind of weird. But that's what Arcadia did. The flip side to this is if you're doing a live service game in the arcade, you can't have the live service home version also be the thing you're doing in the arcade unless you have some weird structure in place to actually give some of that money to the arcade that you would normally be playing at, which Konami did have for some of their games for a brief period of time, which is incredibly strange, but not Beatmania 2DX. Uh, for a while, if you were playing Mahjong Fight Club for some reason, y- a portion of your uh, of y- the money you spent on the online version of the game went to your arcade, which is strange, right? It was a revenue share in the opposite direction, which right. you don't see. And very quickly, Konami realized, hey, we could be taking all of this money for ourselves. Why are we going to continue doing this? Uh, so they stopped doing that. Yeah, I guess it's to look good and not to uh, piss off the arcade owners and all of that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, but I thought these two examples were really, uh, fun examples to trot out. But wait a sec. Uh, was that home release successful in the end? Infinitas? Yes. Uh, kind of. So the, the thing to consider, of course, is that the target market for this was never Westerners. It was always Japan. It was okay. always, this is the fallback for what happens if the arcade business dies tomorrow. And I think. Uh... Konami really benefited from having Infinitas in place when COVID hit because suddenly there are a lot of people who can't play 2DX in an arcade anymore who can play at home because they have PCs now because for some reason in the last 10 years, Japan really got into PC gaming and I don't understand why. So it was not a way to cannibalize their sales of arcade credits. It was more like we're losing ground in the arcade because the arcade business is literally dying so let's try to get back some of that money we used to make by getting creating an home release. And over time, they've actually added a lot of uh, cross-promotion, kind of, uh, between Infinitas and the actual arcade version of the game, where mm. there are songs you can unlock if you only play uh, Infinitas and vice versa. So you kind uh. of want to be playing both, which is ideally what uh, Konami wants from this scenario. Uh, which makes a lot of sense for the Japanese market where there is this, uh, there's basically equal access to both. Whereas yeah, in North America, you, if you don't live near a round one arcade, which is the only arcade chain that is allowed to carry uh, online enabled uh, Konami music games, uh, you're kind of screwed. You can only play Infinitas. And like, there's definitely a lot of good stuff you can get from Infinitas and it has gotten a lot better in recent years. But you're still behind on the arcade version at the end mm-hmm. of the day. I see. Although not that behind the arcade version. You're like a year and a half behind, which is not that bad grand scheme of things. And also, like this is something really whack that I realized last week. All of the Konami music games, not just Beatmania 2DX, all of them are now available on PC with a similar model. You have to buy fancy-ass controllers for all of them for sure, but all of them are now playable on PC, which means technically there's no excuse that I have other than 
not wanting to have another closet full of controllers that I <laughs> couldn't be playing all of these games at home. To, to, to me, this is a good excuse, though, but I see your point. And I guess they're all subscription-based, where you pay like $17, $20, like you mentioned, from Bitmania, and it's you can have access to... It's more complicated than that, but at a base level, you do want to be subscribing to the ones you care the most about, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, that that's pretty much where I was going. I mean, like the last thing I had been throwing around and I sort of cut it from my outline, but I guess we might have time for it, is uh, for a period of time, again, I was developing Iconoclasm, which was on the Jailbreak App Store Cydia, and I sold 92,000 copies. And that was cool, but there was also like a big chunk of my user base, which was using pirated versions of Iconoclasm. And very quickly, what I realized is, uh, well, first of all, if you're doing jailbreak development, just to have your phone jailbroken, you've already done like 90% of the work to enable piracy. So it is like a tiny amount of work to actually like get everything for free if you want it. So I think the the quotes that I had seen was like, estimate that about 30% of your user base is from pirated versions of your app on Cydia, which is a lot. But at the same time, I still made enough money to not really have to care. It's not like they were bleeding me dry. And very quickly realized from talking to some of these people and support emails and stuff like that, that a lot of these people are either not in a situation where they can pay because they're children, which I I mean, I can relate to that. There were scenarios when I was younger that it was easier to pirate things than to convince my parents to actually ask them to put the credit card in. Uh, So I totally get that. There's also people who just think, your thing is worthless and they weren't going to pay for it anyway. They're just going to get it for free if they can, which is like, cool. I know people who do that too, uh, for various kinds of things. A lot of times, like you can't be thinking of piracy as lost sales. And I think for video games and entertainment as per- in particular, it's a very weird thing where sometimes the motivations that people have for playing your game as an emulated form has like nothing to do with the legality of things, but a specific use case that emulation is just better suited for than uh, whatever is officially available. Stuff like Fightcade, right? Uh, Like all of these emulatable uh, fighting games that can be played online. Arcade PCBs can't do this shit naturally. You can't play Street Fighter 2 Super Turbo online against other people with rollback netcode if you have two PCBs of the game in different parts of the world. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. But oh, no, the, I thought they had the big cable from one end to the to one PCB to the other. Like they all like intertwine like this. Like I, I think it's fucking hilarious that uh Street Fighter 3 Third Strike these days is seen as one of the best versions of Street Fighter. Meanwhile, there was a documentary recently that was released about like what happened. Why was Street Fighter Three such a flop when it came out in the '90s? And everyone is saying like we we would go to meetings and we would say like this quarter we sold 400 machines, and like that's nothing. And the only reason that uh, Third Strike has like a massive player base these days, and you can go online almost any time of day and have more people than the number of cabinets they sold that quarter playing the game online against each other is because Fightgate and emulation exists. So there are entire classes of use cases that these people who only think of the uh, that the legal and legitimate ways of playing these games are the only ways that you should be playing games don't even envision that are enabled by this stuff. And oftentimes they're better than the definitive uh, editions that are officially released because MAME and the work that is built into these emulators is like 20, 30 years of work going back number of years, whereas any team that is working on a port of these fighting games doesn't have the resources to make up for 30 man years of collective effort on these uh, emulators, right? So people need to stop being like a pain in the ass to emulation. (laughs) It is a gift to everyone who loves games and game history. And we should be respectful of that and not try to shut it down every opportunity we get. And over time, like Nintendo has been incredibly bad with this. They still are to some extent with all of the smash stuff that's going on, uh, which I don't want to get into, but uh, it really made me sad over the holiday season to see XR Arcadia going down this route and I just, I had to say something about it because it pissed me off so much. 
good. And I hope people can notice from the way I'm talking that I actually care about the arcade business and, well, well, maybe not the arcade business, but I care about preserving arcade culture and the memories we've had of, of these games and uh, building a place that has similar mentality to uh, the arcades of yore and preserving that going forward instead of like, it's really important to me that people can continue to make money in the short term from arcades, even though the business model is dying. I love your uh, business That's my rage voice. voice. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought it was your business person uh, voice. No, I don't, I don't think I have a business person voice. Uh, okay. Okay. Good. Is that it? Yes. Perfect. So you can find the show note for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 176 or 176. You can also find our back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Lucanoche. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And Yannick is at... Sakarina, that's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.